Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. As we begin this morning, let me just give you a quick review of where we've come to so that the subject matter will make sense. Hopefully, um, if you've been here, you'll recall where we've been in the preceding chapters, and if not, hopefully I'll give you enough information to kind of set the stage for this morning. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are a unit of thought. They're a unit that is seeking to communicate a truth That truth could be, is stated actually in the ninth chapter in the sixth verse where Paul asks the question, has the word of God failed? And really what Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are Paul's answer to that question, has the word of God failed? And the setup for the question is this, Paul had ended the eighth chapter of Romans and he had come to the conclusion of that incredible chapter full of incredible promises of God for those who are His sons and His daughters. Let me read you a few of the concluding statements or phrases from the 8th chapter of Romans. Paul writes, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ?" And then he lists several things. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. His point is, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Then he says down in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has been driving that truth home throughout all of Romans chapter 8 that those who are saved, those who are sons and daughters of God, they are absolutely secure in that and nothing can separate them from the love of God. And then comes the ninth chapter of Romans and immediately the question begs to be answered. Paul, if that is true, then why is Israel as a nation, this people throughout the Old Testament known as the chosen people of God, this unique people that had all of the blessings of God in a way that no other people had, why are they cut off from God? Why are they under the condemnation of God instead of the blessing of God? So Paul is answering that question. He raises it in chapter 9, verse 6, saying, has the word of God failed? And then he uses the nation of Israel down through chapter 9, 10, and 11 
to develop this argument and prove the truth that no, the word of God has not failed. And therefore, what you can do is trust that God is a God who is faithful to his word. If he was faithful to his word to the Israelites, then if you are his son or his daughter, he will be faithful to you as well. So Paul uses Israel as this incredible test case down through chapters 9, 10, and 11 to prove the faithfulness of God, that his promises are true, and that what he says in his word will never fail. And so we come to the 11th chapter in this three-chapter unit. And let me just give you a quick overview of what the 11th chapter includes. It can be divided really into three sections. Verses 1 to 10, and those verses begin with a question that Paul asks, and then he answers it down to verse 10. And then verse 11 has a second question that he asks, and then he answers it down to verse 32, and then the last few verses are this incredible explosion of praise and worship to God, giving him glory for the amazing way that God works in salvation. You see, what we are reading about in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is God's working in salvation throughout human history. It's really talking to us about the very person and the character of God as evidenced by the way he works. So why Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11? Why study the 11th chapter of Romans? Because the very nature of God is in question The very glory of God is at stake. And what Paul says and reflects upon in the 11th chapter causes him to come to the end of the chapter and have this explosion of praise and worship because of the glory of God that is evident in the way that he works his salvation campaign in human history. So let me show you the two questions From Romans chapter 11. Remember, the Jews aren't in question here. The big question of the three chapters is, has the word of God failed? Because in Paul's day, he's looking around at the Jews and the large part of them, by vast majority, are accursed and cut off from God. They're not under the blessing of God. They're away from God's promises. They're under God's judgment. And so he is trying to show that God is in fact faithful in dealing with Israel, and therefore that faithful God will deal with us in the right way as well. Here's the question of chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected his people? The people of Israel. So the question is this, chapter 10 ended with this picture, Paul says, of God holding out his hands all day long to an obstinate people, to this nation of Israel that were his specially designated people throughout the Old Testament, but they rejected the Savior he sent. Though he tries and tries 
to offer them grace, holding out his hands to them. They've rejected him. And so the question of chapter 11, verse 1, is has God rejected them? Let me say it another way. What Paul is asking and going to answer is this. Has God fully rejected his people? Is he done with the nation of Israel? I mean, now that we are in this new covenant in the New Testament, has this people of Israel as this special people of God, is God just completely through with that? Are they no longer considered anything unique in human history? Has God just completely rejected them because they rejected Him? And His answer is, by no means, in verse 1. Absolutely not. Said another way, it is impossible that God would reject His people. And so he deals with that down through verse 10. Explains why. Second section, verse 11, asks the second question. Again, talking to Israel about Israel, Paul says, did they, the Israelite nation, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? I mean, because of what they have done in rejecting the Son, the one that had been promised to them in the Old Testament, had pointed to over and over again, because they rejected Him, turned away, did they stumble? Are they so far outside of the grace of God that God can never recover them? And again, what He says is absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so, what verses 1 to 10 are about is Paul is saying, God has not totally rejected his people. And he's going to prove it by talking about a remnant of Jews that God has preserved. So God has not totally rejected his people. And then verses 11 to 32, he's teaching this. God has not finally rejected His people. In other words, there is going to be what He teaches in the last part of the chapter is in the end, there's going to be a return. There's going to be a moving of God upon the nation of Israel where they are going to turn their hearts back to Christ and accept Christ and have this mighty revival. So, 11th chapter of Romans... Paul talking about this campaign of salvation of God in human history, using Israel as the test case, says this. He's teaching us what God's going to do in the future. And he says, God has not finally rejected his people or totally. They are not all outside of the grace of God. And secondly, it's not forever that they are going to be in a wholesale way outside. There's going to be a return. There's going to be a mighty move of God. So that's the overview. So let's now jump in to chapter 11, the beginning verses of chapter 11. Again, the point is this, that Paul is making. He's asking the question, has God rejected his people, the Israelites? And the point he is driving home is God has not rejected them. And then he gives some reasons to prove that God has not. And let me show them to you. I'm going to draw out four reasons. The first one is this. 
Paul himself is an Israelite and he's not rejected. Look at the second half of verse 1. Here's Paul's first proof that God has not rejected his people. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's the point. I'm an Israelite. God didn't reject me. Therefore, God's rejection of the people of Israel is not total. It's not true of all of them. Here I am. I'm one. I'm a child of God. I'm saved. I'm not going to spend any time there because that's it's, it teaches itself. It's very clear. Here's the second reason, the second proof. What he does is he looks into the Old Testament and he says, God in the Old Testament had a remnant of Jewish people, of Israelite people that he did not reject. Look at verses 2 and verse 3. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Let me just show you what's happening here. Paul is trying to drive a point home that God has not fully rejected his people. And so what he does, as he does so many times, he reaches into the Old Testament and he grabs a biblical example to drive the truth that he wants to make home. And so he goes to the story of Elijah. And here's what's happening in the story of Elijah. Elijah is a prophet in Israel, in a time where the nation was apostate. They were, in wholesale fashion, worshiping and serving idols. They had turned their hearts radically from God. They were a wicked and perverse nation. They were worshiping the idol of Baal, B-A-A-L. All over, the people of Israel were doing that. And Elijah, this prophet of God, is bemoaning the fact, and in an emotionally charged moment, he cries out to God in prayer as he looks at the situation, and he says, Oh God, all of the prophets have been killed by this wicked generation. All those who served you and were faithful, I am the only one left. Out of all of those who have kept their heart towards you. And now they're trying even to kill me. That's the prayer of Elijah. Do you see a little bit of the similarity here? In Paul's day, he's looking around and he's saying, Wow, in wholesale fashion, Israel has turned their hearts away from God. They have rejected the Savior that he sent. They are not living under the blessing of God. So what does that mean? Has God rejected his people? So he goes back to Elijah's day in a time where in wholesale fashion, they had rejected God. And he says, what did God say to Elijah when Elijah said, Oh God, I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. The people of yours, Elijah's saying, are on the brink of extinction. I die, it's done. Listen to what Paul, how Paul answers that. Really what he does is he grabs the answer of God to 
Elijah at the end of that prayer. Find that down in verse 4. Here is God's answer, Paul says, to Elijah who was saying, he's the only one left. And there's a contract out on his life. Romans 11.4. But God... But what is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you got your arithmetic wrong. It's not one. You're not the only one. God says, here's what I've done. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not turned their heart toward idols. In the nation, I have done that. I have done a sovereign work determining that I am keeping a remnant for myself. And there are 7,000, in fact, of them who have not become apostate, who have not turned to idols. That's my work. I've done it. I kept them for myself. So the point here that Paul is focusing on is not simply that in Elijah's day, there was a lot of people that had turned away from God as there had in Paul's day among the people of Israel. That's not the main point. The main point is this. God is sovereign and he makes sure that he keeps a remnant for himself. He determines that he works in that way in salvation. He did it in Elijah's day, keeping 7,000 for himself by his action, by his work, by his sovereignty. And in the same way, Paul says, God does that this day today. Let me show you how Paul jumps from Elijah's day to his day. Verse 5, so too, Paul says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul said, in Elijah's day, here is how God chose that remnant. He chose them by what? What does it say? By grace. And then he opens that verse with this, so too at the present time. In other words, just like in Paul's day, the remnant was chosen by grace, so too, Paul says, in this day, the remnant of Israel is chosen by grace. So the key to Paul's argument here, that God has not rejected his people, the proof and the force of the proof that Paul is making is that he rests this truth based solely upon the person and the work of God. I'm going to try to make that even more clear and explicit as we walk down through the end of chapter 6 here. You see what Paul is doing here, as he has done so many times down through Romans chapter 9 and 10. We've seen this. If you've been here so many times, Paul has done this. He has said, God saves according to his election. 
His election is his choice. It's the same thing as saying God has chosen them by grace. It's the same thing. Election means God's choosing. And how does God choose? He does it by grace. And he had said that so many times, down through Romans chapter 9, down through Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 9, he used the story of Jacob and Esau, and he said, long before Jacob and Esau were ever born or had done anything, God chose one of them and didn't choose the other. That was his elect purpose that did that. It was according to his purposes of election that he did that. And down through these two chapters, he's been repeating that. Here again, he reaches into the story of Elijah, and he says, how does God choose those that he will save? He does it according to his grace. It is his choice of election according to his grace by which he says, I am determining those I am going to save and keep for myself. So the Doctrine of election that we've been looking at. I know this is a hard doctrine. I know, I know, I know, church, this is a hard doctrine. It's bigger than our mind can understand. We can only understand what God has chosen to reveal to us. and He has not chosen to reveal all of it to us, but here's what He's chosen to reveal. God saves according to His election, meaning from eternity past before the creation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, God chose who He was going to save through the person and work of Christ before the world ever began. And how did He make that choice? What was the determining factor in choosing those that he chose? He chose them by grace. That's the point. He chose them by grace. That's always how he does that. Now to make it even more explicit, as if Paul has not hit that Enough, over and over again, down through Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, now in the beginning of chapter 11 up to verse 5, and you say, yeah, Brad, if you've been here, I know, you've been talking and talking and talking about it, I'm getting tired of you talking about it. What I'm just trying to do is I'm trying to say what God inspired Paul to write in his word, and what he does is he keeps emphasizing it. He must have a reason. I believe it's very critical. The reason is very critical. Paul is wanting to make sure that we understand that the foundation upon which we stand in salvation is all of God and not of us. And so he doesn't stop at the end of verse 5. He nails it again in verse 6. And look at how strong it is in verse 6. But if it, His choosing those that will be His, His choice of election and salvation. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of work. Stop right there for a minute. If it is by grace that God chooses those who will be His, it is no longer on the basis of works. See, here's what Paul does here in the sixth verse. In order to drive his point 
home more solidly, he takes a contrast and he says this. Salvation is by grace and that means that it can't be by works. That the two cannot be put together. God's grace is the work of God. Works is the work of man. What Paul is saying here is salvation cannot be both the work of God, grace, and the work of man. It cannot be. They cannot go together. It is an impossibility that the two of them can go together. And then look at how even capitalizes or puts an exclamation point on that at the end of verse 6. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Just let the weight of that truth sink in for a moment. Here is what Paul is saying. That salvation is either a work of God choosing us by grace or it's not. And this work of God choosing us by grace has to be 100% the work of God and not any degree whatsoever the work of man. Because if man has any degree of participation in it, here's what happens. Grace is no more. It is either the grace of God or it is the work of man. You cannot put them together in any degree in salvation because the moment you try to add in even one iota of the work of man, what it does is it defeats grace altogether because grace cannot be diluted. It has got to be pure. All of grace, not of works. So let me just talk that through for a minute, my principle here. What if God who knows all things, right? God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning before the creation of the world, before he ever said, let there be light and created this universe and put humans on the planet. God knew everything about every person that would ever live throughout all history in comprehensive perfection. And what if God from eternity past, looking down through history and eternity future, saw everyone that would choose him at some point in their life, would put their faith in Christ, then God said, because at some point in the future they're going to choose me, then I'm going to choose them to be saved. What if that was the way it worked? And what Paul, I believe, unequivocally is saying here, it can't be that way because grace has to be all God, no man. And if it's God from eternity past, looking into eternity future, seeing everybody that would put their faith in him and saying, okay, because they're going to do that at some point, I'm choosing them. Then what does salvation rest upon? What's the basis for God's choice? It is man's choice. 
It is God choosing us because he saw that we would choose him. But that is not what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 5 and verse 6. He said God's choice of those he's going to save is based upon his grace. And here's what that means. It's all grace and no works. And if you put any works to it, it ruins the whole thing and it's not salvation. So God cannot be the 99.99% provider of salvation and man just be a 0.01%. Even though that is so minimal, it is basically nothing. But Paul says it can't be that way. It's either all grace or it's not grace. You say, well, Brad, that would be incredible if God did 99.9% of it, and we only did one hundredth of a percent. That would be an incredible thing that God gave us. Yes, it would be, but here's what it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be grace because you add anything of man to it. Paul says it is not grace anymore. That's the strength by which Paul makes his argument. And so... The point Paul is making here is that God has not rejected his people. And how do we know that? Because God, Paul says, God has not rejected me, and I'm one of his people. Number two, down through Old Testament history, God kept a remnant of his people selected by grace that he made sure that he kept himself. And then Paul says, number three, in my day, it's just like that day. God has always worked according to his election of grace. And number four, it's because God always, when he saves, does it based upon grace and not upon man's part whatsoever. So how can we know that God is faithful to his promises and that always follows through on those that he's going to save because it's his work and he is going to start it and carry it through all the way to the end. God is faithful to his promises. That's the point Paul is making in these three chapters. So let me end with this. Application. What do we do then How do we interpret and how do we apply this doctrine of God's grace, this choosing salvation based upon grace? Well, let me give you a couple of ways that we could pervert it. This is what we should not do. This is the wrong conclusion because many who have a struggle with this doctrine pervert the doctrine and draw the wrong conclusion. So here's to the unsaved. If you're unsaved and you're hearing about this election of God by which he saves people, do not say, if election is true, if God just chooses, then I'm just going to sit here and wait for him to choose me. I'm not going to do anything. That's the wrong conclusion. That's the wrong conclusion. It is true that you are helpless and can do nothing for your own salvation. But let me give you a couple of illustrations. Jesus, at one point, stood before a man with a withered hand, and hand and arm that did not function. They were dead. They were an appendage to his body that was dead. And Jesus said to him, stretch forth your arm. Was that possible? 
No, that was not possible. It's dead. It's absolutely dead. And yet Jesus said, stretch forth your arm. And when the man tried to do what there's no way he could do, he found that God had provided, Jesus had provided the power for that to happen and his arm was restored. Let me give you another example. It says in the New Testament, talking to the unsaved, he says, Arise, O sleeper, wake from the dead and Christ's light will shine on you. How can anybody Raise themselves from the dead. Impossible. They're dead. They can't hear. There's no sensory perception there. Yell as loud as you want. They're not waking up. And yet, the command is, O sleeper, rise from the dead. You see, the point is, God is the one that provides the power to those that He has elected so that if you're hearing the voice of Christ calling you to salvation, here's what it means. He's waking you up from death. You're not doing it. He's doing it. He's giving you the power. You are one of His elect because God is choosing you by grace. So what do you need to do? You need to do what God says. If you're hearing the voice, pursue Him. If you're hearing the voice, stretch forth your hand to receive salvation. If you're hearing the voice, rise up and walk the new life because God is doing the work. Here's a perverted way to take the doctrine of election again by the unsaved. Do not say, if you're unsaved, I must not be one of the elect. Don't say that. Why? Because it's by grace. It's by grace. That means there is nothing about your life that keeps you outside of the salvation of God. Why? Because it's not about you. It's about God's choice of grace. It's not about something in you that God said, oh wow, that's really special. I'm saving him. No, that's not the point. It's by the grace of God. So any sinner can say, wow, I might have a part in the election of God. My sin, as black as it is, means that I cannot be because of my sin cut off. It's not the way it works. It's by God's work, not mine. Here is a perverted way to take the doctrine of election from those who are saved. Do not say if election is true, then I can just live however I want. I'm saved, man. I'm in. I'm secure. I can do whatever I want. I can live a life of sin. If you say you're a believer and you believe that, then here's what I want to say to you. That is incredible evidence against you that you're not elect. Because no elect would say that. Because what happens in election and salvation is that God gives you a new heart and you want to do the things of God. You want to live for God. Do you blow it at times? Yes. But you blow it in brokenness. You're sorry for what you have done against the love of God. So you are not saying, man, my election means I get to do whatever I want. No, the truth of the Word of God is my election says live a holy life. So let me give you the right way to interpret God's election in salvation to the unsaved. Do this. Have the courage. Have the courage to seek the grace of God even if you're the greatest sinner because nothing you've done 
puts you outside of the reach of the grace of God because it's not about what you have done. It's about who he is and what he's doing. So seek the grace of God to the saved, to the saved. How to properly apply the doctrine of election. Just three things quickly. Live in humility. Oh, it's all God, not you. Don't ever say, wow, I'm one of the elect. Oh, man, you're there by the grace of God not because of something that you've done. Number two, live holy. Live holy to the best of your ability. Why were you saved? Scripture says, here's the purpose for your salvation, so that you can live a holy life, blameless before God. That's why He saved you, to live a holy life. So do your best to live it. And then number three, share the gospel with everyone. Here's what I mean by that. Don't look at somebody and say, wow, that is the worst sinner I have ever seen. I cannot witness to them. They're hopeless. No, they're not. Because it's not about them. It's about God. And God just might use your testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ and His salvation to reach out to the vilest sinner that you know and raise them up to new life because the Spirit of God empowers what you share to bring that new life. That's the way we should interpret just a few of the ways that we should interpret and apply the doctrine of God's election of grace. Would you please stand as we close? I just want to pray, church, over you. Ask that God will help this truth to continue to get seated in our hearts for the purpose of causing us to see the glory of God in ways that we cannot. Because at the end of chapter 11, that's what happened to Paul. He said, oh my, he broke out in praise and adoration to the glory of God because of what he had been contemplating and teaching about God's work in salvation in human history. It should have the same result in us if we're interpreting it properly. Father, I pray that this word about your sovereign, electing salvation based upon grace would help us to see your glory and have the hope to reach out for salvation because your grace can reach even us even if we believe that we're the vilest of sinners and encourage us to witness and share the truth of Christ, knowing that Christ can save anyone through the testimony of the good news of Jesus. Whoever He chooses to save, He can do that. And wow, we get to participate with that through our witness. Just to be passionate about that. All for Your glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.